We've been talking the last several weeks about life with God and trying to get a handle on that. This morning, I want to remind us, and you probably have this tattooed on your brain so far, what is the most important thing about a person? It's not, as has been so wisely suggested, that it might be personal hygiene. That's very important. And how we treat other people, that's also very important. But what is the most important thing about a person? Well, according to A.W. Tozer, who once preached here in this church, the most important thing about us is what comes into our minds when we think about God. Because that's going to determine the course of our life and our ultimate destiny. That's why. Okay? So the most important thing about us is what comes into our minds when we think about God. What's your dream car? What's your dream car? Let's have, there's, there has to be a few motorheads in the audience today. Just tell me, what, what is your dream automobile? Anybody? A yellow car. A yellow car. Okay. Doesn't matter what anything color. Yellow. yellow. Anything yellow. I, I love it when I go car shopping with some people in my family. The first thing they want to know is, what color is it? I'm not talking about Luann, but my sister said, oh, what color is it? I don't know. Anyway. Okay, yellow. All right. Anybody else? Dream car? Pink. Pink. Okay. Mary Kay is looking for someone like you. Mary Kay. Okay. I'm sorry? A Shelby Cobra. You have good taste. Limited production car. Okay. One more person. A 57 Chevrolet. Okay. For years, I, I prayed for a minivan that just I wouldn't have to replace the transmission on. I got smart and I changed models, but I'll tell you about that later. We have, uh, Luann's family has got this, um, uh, what's the best adjective to describe Ruth? Kind of a uh, boisterous, colorful, colorful in a good sense lady. Liter- eccentric, yeah, and, and literally colorful lady. She loves the color red. She wore this bright red dress to uh, our wedding. And she's the kind of person, when she comes into the room, you know she's there! Because, not just because she's wearing red, but she's kind of larger than life, not really large, but larger than life presence in her personality. She is the proud owner of a 1967 Ford Mustang convertible. Only Ruth drives this car. Her very patient, kindly husband ride shotgun. Ruth drives the car. And and inevitably, whenever she parks it, she usually comes back, when when she's done, she comes back to drive home. She finds tucked under the windshield wiper, hey, want to sell your car? Here's my number. And she resolutely refuses to sell this vehicle. And I'm pretty confident that I'm not in her will so I probably won't inherit this car, but that's it. It's a, it's, a, it's a lovely car, 67 Mustang. That car is her treasure. It's her baby, and she, she takes care of it, and it, it looks pretty much like that picture. We actually once got to ride in the back seat. It's like, whoo, we are not worthy. We got to ride in Ruth's car. That was awesome. So that's her treasure. Imagine, though, um, to fully experience that vehicle 
Like if you have a dream car, like Ruth has a dream car, uh, you need a vision of it. So it might be yellow or it might be pink or whatever your dream car is. Uh, you have to envision it. And then you have to uh, unite with it. You have to get it. Beg, borrow, or steal. Hopefully borrow or save up money to purchase your vehicle. But it's not enough to just dream about it. It's not about just to, to, to get it, to unite with it. You want to experience with it. I was reading uh, last year about a young um, professional athlete who was, as part of his signing bonus, I can't remember what sport it was. It might have been a basketball player. Um, he was given this Maserati sports car as a signing bonus. And the reporter interviewing him says, Wow, you got this gorgeous car. Are you excited? How does it drive? Uh, I can't drive stick. You can't drive it? You don't know how to drive it? It's like, oh. And I thought, maybe he needs a chauffeur. I can do that. Even I, even I could do that. But anyway, this poor young guy needed someone to teach him how to experience this beautiful car. Hopefully he got some lessons. It's kind of like life with God. We can hear hints about it. But to really fully experience God and to know God as our treasure, we kind of have to get it out of the driveway and learn how to drive, learn how to experience God, right? Do you see the connection? It's a little kind of a crude analogy, but for you motorheads, you, you may be salivating over this picture. I don't know. We'll see. So what is our treasure? And how do we unite with our treasure? And how do we experience our treasure? What's really important in life? And what do we really connect with? And how do we experience that? I have a... One of my ancestors, my maternal great-grandfather, Robert McKinley. The McKinleys came off the boat sometime in the mid-1800s and settled in a, in a part of Ontario that looks a lot like Scotland. So it's full of rocks and trees, not great farmland, but that's where they settled. And they were devout Presbyterians. And part of the Presbyterian, how you become part of the Presbyterian church, they learned something called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Pretty impressive. And my mom uncovered this dusty old document that belonged to my maternal great-grandfather, Robert McKinley. And I was always intrigued with this catechism because I only know the first question of it. Uh, it's got kind of a nice ring to it. What is the chief end of man? Basically, what's life all about? What is life all about? It's a fascinating answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What? What the dickens does that mean? Man, I, I can sort of understand, okay, the, the, the big reason we're here as human beings, why are we here as human beings? The big reason we're here is to glorify God, saying, hey, wow, God's awesome in everything I do. Kind of like what John was referring to when he prayed for the offering. We worship God. There's a lot of ways to worship God. It's not just about singing in church. Worship is much bigger than that. Uh, I was thinking this morning uh, when Pastor Justina read a story about I think it was J.S. Bach, who, who used to write SDG on his, uh, is that right, Ken? SDG means Soli 
Dei Gloria. I mean, to God only, on every piece of music that he wrote. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be interesting if we wrote SDG on everything we did for God? So imagine if you're a University of Winnipeg student and you're writing a paper, and at the end you just write in a little initials SDG. Only glory to God. Now, that would bamboozle your prof, wouldn't it? Hopefully it wouldn't affect your grade in a negative way. Or if you make a meal for your family, and in the macaroni you, you draw out the letters, you know, SDG. Maybe spaghetti be a little more flexible. SDG. And they go, oh, it's this. Or doing a sales report. Or changing a diaper, or cutting the grass, or something, you, you mentally say, okay, I'm doing this for God. That's what it means. The first part of this, what, are, what is life all about for a human being? Man's chief end is to glorify God. But the next part has always puzzled me. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, I didn't know, I, I, I asked to confess, I didn't know Presbyterians were allowed to enjoy anything. <laughs> Because when I look at pictures of my Scottish ancestors, they're, they're what they're called very dour. Dour. It's kind of a Scottish way of saying you know, scowly and solemn. And I guess that was just the way photographs looked back then. But they, they didn't look like they were enjoying anything. But how do we enjoy God forever? That's always kind of it puzzled me. And it sounded a little bit super spiritual. To understand this, we need to realize that The gospel, the good news about Jesus, is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. Now think about this. This is a very subtle lie. The good news about Jesus is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. Because our big problem in life is that we're alienated from God. We're alienated from the Creator. That that relationship is broken. That's why people are broken. We're alienated from our Creator. We don't know who we are. We don't know where we've come from. We don't have a clue why we're here or where we're going. We're alienated from our Creator, the one who knows us best. And it's not like everything is all rosy when we start, when we come to Jesus and start following Him. Some people, some honest folks will say, life can often get more complicated when you start following Jesus. But all of a sudden, the pieces start to come together and the light goes on and you go, "Ah, I get it now. I realize what I've been missing. And you talk to people who've been following Jesus and they talk about their pre-Jesus days and their post-Jesus days. They talk about it. Yeah, the light went on. The nickel dropped. I get it now. Okay? That's what they're talking about. But in our consumer society... People want to get something out of God. And we pitch the gospel as a way to get people to heaven, not a way to get people to God, which is what we really should be about. Let me suggest to you, this this is what life's all about. Communion with God, a connection with God, a relationship with Him, begins when we stop trying to use Him to get what we want, and we start learning to enjoy Him for who he is. It is possible to enjoy God. It sounds kind of odd and, and, and airy-fairy, but I think we were enjoying God this morning, and it wasn't just because it was a you know, 
boy, thank you, worship team. That was really inspiring. But, but what it was, it was the Spirit of God connecting with our spirits and saying, yeah, this makes sense. This, this is true. This is the ring of truth. And I'm going to express my, I'm going to engage my brain and my emotions and my body and just vibrate with the presence of God. Yeah, this is true. And not worry about copying other people or what other people are doing, if they're dancing or not dancing. Or Anybody dancing today? I love it when the little girls over here do that in the morning. It's, don't worry, I, I likely won't join them because that would be a very unnecessary distraction. I promise to do all my dancing in the back where you can't see it. But just engaging all of us in, in enjoying God and communing with, communing with Him. But we need to stop trying to use him to get what we want. And we need to start learn, learning how to enjoy him for who he is. So we need to give ourselves, I believe, an attitude check. And the scripture I'm going to look at this morning is one I looked at, um, we looked at a few months ago. It's Psalm 131. And I thought this might give us some indication, a, a clue about how to live life with God. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things that are too wonderful for me. The psalmist is giving himself an attitude check. He says, I will not be proud. The root of pride is fear and control. And these are the things that make us want to try to use God to get what we want out of Him, right? It's this consumer mentality towards God. Some of us live life under God. We're trying to earn His favor and hoping to manipulate Him through compliance to religious rules and rituals. And if you grew up in a legalistic home or a legalistic church, you were taught, this is what people do. If you want to fit in, this is how you behave. And then somehow you pass the grade and God will approve of you. Now, it's never that blatant. It's usually more subtle. But that's basically the essence of it. Behavior, if you behave, then you believe, then you belong in that order. So that's life undergone, right? Trying to earn his favor, hoping to manipulate him through compliance to religious rules and rituals. Some people, of course, live life over God. They uh, live almost, they're, they're what I call Christian atheists. They live almost as if God doesn't exist. They use principles from the Bible as a guideline for their life. And some of them even sell these principles and teach them and on TV and stuff like that. You follow these so many principles and you will be successful. Blah, blah, blah. They live as if he really doesn't exist. They wouldn't think of really praying or they make lip service to prayer. They might start a business meeting with a short prayer, but then they just plan as if God doesn't exist or they ask God to rubber stamp their plans. So they live as if God doesn't really exist and just follow principles from the Bible without depending, really depending on him to guide and empower them, which is really sad. Going back to Tozer, he said, the average evangelical church says, I wonder if the Holy Spirit left the building if anybody would really notice. And you know, a few weeks ago, we had an electricity problem here at Elam Chapel, and we had to cancel the service, right? 
God willing, we will never have a power problem at Elam Chapel. If we do, then we're getting on our knees and getting right with God until we have his power. You hear what I'm saying? I'm really firm about this. You might think it's semantics, but if we've got a power problem at Elam Chapel, that is a crisis. Electricity, I guess we can light a candle and join our Catholic friends. I don't know, but that might, Garth might not like that. It might set off sprinklers or something, but it's the power. And that's what life over God That's the problem with life over God. We're trying to manipulate God by following some principles in the Bible or something, but we don't follow, we follow the rules, but not the rule giver, okay? And that's a really scary scenario. Some of us, of course, live life from God, and we're living with a consumeristic attitude. I'm only interested in God for what I can get out of this relationship. Just like the, the prodigal son story we saw last week, right? Our friend Jason uh, talked about that, that runaway younger son who just wanted what he could get out of his relationship with his dad. Didn't care about his dad at all and just took off. Some of us, the more dutiful older sons, live life for God. Now, this is not a bad thing. I had a good conversation with someone just before church this morning saying, you know, it's not a bad thing to live for God, but... If we're more focused on God's mission and working for God than God himself, we also miss the boat, right? It's very subtle and very dangerous. There are some folks that are just so wrapped up in working for God, they don't have a relationship with him. They miss out. And they become eventually embittered and judgmental, just like the older son that we saw in the play last week. You don't want to go there. You don't want to live like that. So the bottom line is we have to surrender our agenda for life to our Papa. We have to surrender that agenda and saying, Lord, I don't know if I'm over, under, from, for. I'm not sure, but I'm just not in the center with you where I should be. And here's how we do that. The second verse of Psalm 131 says, But I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. The picture is of a baby who isn't just trying to get something out of mama, but a baby who's just learned to settle down and just allow you know, the parent or the caregiver just to hold that baby and, and cradle and love that baby. And it's more of a focus on the relationship rather than trying to get something out of the caregiver, Okay. And that should be our attitude towards God. We allow him, we enter into his love, we allow him to love us, we're honest with him, that really helps. Because he knows everything about us anyway. You know, it's so funny the way that grown-ups play hide-and-go-seek. You know, it's so goofy. Because we play like, you play hide-and-go-seek with a little two-year-old, and what do they do? They go like this. Ah, And it's really cute when you're two years old. When you're 52, it's kind of embarrassing. But many of us come before God and go, <laughs> you know. And God's like, oh, come on. Uh, that used to be cute when you were little. It's just kind of silly now. It's just goofy, right? So how can we come to God in prayer and go, oh, can't see what I did. 
Let's, let's just ignore that, you know. The dead fish should stay under the table and who cares about that elephant in the corner over there or the other elephant, you know, like, right? So let's stop doing that and just be honest in our relationship with God. I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. That means I do not presume to tell God what to do. So we surrender our agenda for life to our Papa and we can trust him to know what's best for us. We can trust him. And that brings us into life with God. Life with God. Luanne's been uh, mentoring uh, a young woman in Winnipeg off and on for several years, and we were reading the With book together, and she came to me one morning and said, Rick, I'm in the triangle. It's like, what? What are you talking about? And I've been diagramming this thing out, and she was kind of getting the handle on, I'm, it was her way of saying, I'm living life with God. I'm in the triangle. Like, I get it, you know? And I thought, wow, that's exciting. I, I want to be in the triangle too. I don't want to be trying to manipulate God or trying to control God. I, I, I want to commune with him. And, and that's an odd word. We don't use commune very much uh, in, in everyday Canadian discourse. But I just want to connect with God. You know? That, that's how I want. I want to feel connected with God. And that's in essence, what she was saying. So what that means is I will center myself on who I am in Christ, how God sees me. The last verse of Psalm 131 says, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. What does it mean to put our hope in the Lord? It means I don't have to prove myself to anybody. I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to prove myself to you folks, as nice as you are. I don't have to prove myself to my family of origin or to my friends or anybody out there in Portage Avenue. I don't have to prove myself to be valuable or important or anything like that. God knows who I am. I don't have to worry about... uh, I don't have to let fear and control run my life. Really. Now think about that one. I do not have to let fear and control run my life. Most of us really aren't in control of our lives anyway, if we're honest about it. Oh, it's true. Not really. And I don't have to be afraid of circumstances or other people or myself. I don't have to be afraid of the truth. I don't have to live life like that because I put my hope in the Lord, how he sees me, how he is being sovereign over my life, how he is going to provide and protect and care for me. In fact, we can go back to another psalm, Psalm 23, and and quote with our brother David, the Lord's my shepherd, don't need a thing. It's out of the message. Love that translation. The Lord's my shepherd. I don't need a thing. I don't let fear and control run my life. But how do we stay in this? How do we stay in the 
the triangle, so to speak. How do we do this? What does this look like? Remember that communion with God begins when we stop trying to use Him to get what we want and we start learning to enjoy Him for who He is. And I think this starts with being, starts with being thankful. We have to recalibrate our spirit and saying every day, saying, Lord, and, and not even every day, like just as a constant ongoing basis. Let me um, tell you a story. I'll, I'll give you a couple of things that, that might be able to help us because I want this to be as practical as possible. How can we center ourselves, get in the triangle, live, learn to live life with God? There are a couple of habits, as long as we don't make them idols, a couple of habits that can help us doing this. Um, spiritual fathers call this spiritual disciplines. One is uh, journaling. I don't know if you, it's more than just keeping a diary, but keeping kind of a spiritual diary. Uh, when you read the Bible and, and read it just a piece of it each day and, and jot down some notes saying, what is God saying? What is God saying about himself? What is he saying about me? How does this apply to the rest of my life? What does it mean to those people? What does it mean to me? And how does this, how do I make sense of this? And you go back and you flip back. If you keep doing this over time, you can see, hey, I'm, God's been taking me on a journey. And how has God been providing for me? I got to tell you, I'm so excited. The last four weeks in a row, four young men from Elam have found work. God has provided work every week. Some guy connected with Elam, God's provided an upgrade in employment for that person. I feel like we're on some kind of a roll. I'm so pleased, you know? I mean, God's on a roll. We're just watching what he does. But it's just something like that that I, I'm, I'm kind of writing down as God sightings. And we need to keep track of these God sightings in our life to remind us, God is big. God provides. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, okay? Center yourself in God. So journaling can help or praying through a particular scripture passage. We're going to do this uh, just at the end of the sermon. We're going to practice what this could look like. Um, letting the scripture read us. What that means is that we're not just reading the verses and then we quickly forget what we read. It's easy to do that, isn't it? You know, I'm trying to be disciplined, do my quiet time or whatever we call it. We read it and go like, and I confess, I'm, you know, always thinking about the jets or what I have to do or my to-do list. And sometimes it's best at those times, if you're thinking about something, okay, write it down so you don't forget and get back to what you're trying to focus on in the Bible. Okay, that, that might help some of you who, if you're like me, look at bright and shiny things all the time and get distracted. But, but letting the Bible read us, and what that means is, the Bible is God's word. It has authority over us, right? So we might argue with some of the stuff in there. But there are times when it's like God is reading our mail. You read something and you go, Oh, that's something I should probably stop doing. Or, oh, that's probably something I should start doing. Or a particular person comes to mind. And you think, do I really have to forgive them? You've got to be kidding me. Or do I, you know, do I really have to love that person? Are you kidding me? 
But that's when the Bible starts reading us. And that's a good thing, because that's God communi- communing with us, right? That's good. Um, I would encourage you to check out this guy, Brother Lawrence, the, the practicing the presence of God. Let me tell you a story about Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence um, started his life, it was the 1600s. John, was that right? I believe it was 1600s. Brother Lawrence, late 1600s. Okay, just nod and affirm me, will you? Because I, I, I really need your affirmation to look smart today. Thank you. But it was the late 1600s. We'll, we'll go with that version until the truth comes out. He was a monk. He started out as a, his career as a soldier, was badly injured, and left with a really bad back injury, his sciatic nerves. So every movement was kind of agony. Eventually, he wanted to connect with God, and he became a monk. He, wasn't, he was kind of clumsy, and he, wasn't, he had some challenges. So they put him to work in the kitchen, where he could kind of do the least damage, but still contribute to the spiritual community but over time people were really drawn to brother lawrence because there was something about him people came from far and wide to seek his spiritual advice because there was something different about this guy who never really rose above the rank of sous chef in the monastery kitchen you know he's just preparing food and stuff But there was something about him that people were so drawn to, and he wrote down some of his thoughts. What Brother Lawrence was able to do, he just seemed to be able to live with God all the time. He had this relationship with God that just gave him this sense of peace and well-being that people just couldn't figure out. And they come and try to find out what his quote-unquote spiritual secret was. He had this ability. He lived life kind of on, on two levels in a way. He was aware of everything going on around him. And, and like, as he was saying in his memoirs, he's a little bit clumsy, would kind of break stuff, and wasn't the most adept. And, and he would say, in his own words, perhaps he wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. He was quite humble about who he was. But he loved God, and he knew that God loved him. And there was something amazing that just drew people into his presence. because So he would practice life kind of on, on, on one level and interact with people, but deep down, on a deeper level, he was always connecting with God. He was always had this ongoing conversation with God, even while he was talking with other people, which makes you think, sounds a little weird. But he just had this inner sense that God was with him all the time. I read a story about uh, Billy Graham. It's actually in the With book. It's kind of interesting. In 1982, uh, Billy Graham was scheduled to be interviewed on the Today Show. So out of politeness and respect, one of the producers of the Today Show said to Billy Graham's assistant, just before we go on, we have this quiet room arranged for Dr. Graham to go and pray before he goes into the interview. And the assistant said, well, thanks very much. Won't need it. And the producer was shocked. The spiritual giant, Billy Graham, didn't need to pray before being interviewed on national TV. And the assistant explained it this way. When Dr. Graham woke up, he started talking to God. He talked to God all through breakfast. He talked to God. He and God talked together on the drive here. And probably all through the interview, he and God will be talking. They'll be in conversation. So thanks for the extra prayer room, but... We really don't need it. And that totally bamboozled the producer. But Billy Graham had this, he caught this sense of 
communing with God, connecting with God all the time, letting God's Word dwell in him richly, and just thinking about it and letting him changing from the inside out. You can't really reduce this to a technique. I can try to set the table for us, and I have to confess, this is something I'm on a learning curve, which is why I wanted to go through this together and think, how do we live life with God? It is possible, I think, to be so centered and centered with God that when stuff goes on up here on the outer level, circumstances tend to bash us around and threaten us. At the core of our being, that's all right. I don't have to give in to fear and control because I know God is with me and I am with him. I'd like us to pray through a scripture together. Let's give this a shot. This is, a, this is kind of a, I'm turning this into a prayer workshop, okay? We're going to pray through this. It's one of my favorite prayers in the Bible. It's in Ephesians 3. And it starts like this. When I think of all this, and, and they've, they've, just to preface this, uh, the writer Paul is saying, it's amazing how God has drawn all of us into his family i got to tell you, one of the things I enjoy so much about Elam Chapel is the diversity of folks here. I love watching people come into the sanctuary, and i got to confess, that's why I hang out there in the back uh, for the first few minutes, just to say hi, and just to see what God is going to do with us. And I know there's much more to Elam Chapel than just Sunday morning services. I totally get that. But this is the one time when God kind of gathers us all together. And I see this wonderfully diverse group, and I think, my goodness, Lord, what are you going to do with us today? And so that's what leads up to this prayer. Paul's been praying for the friends that he's writing a letter to. He's saying, man, you guys are awesome. It's amazing seeing what God has been up to. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. Now just think for a minute. I want us to close our eyes. I probably won't because I might trip over something on the stage, okay? Close your eyes for a minute and think about the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. Think about the diversity of nature. Think about the diversity of creation and just how diverse even Canada's geography is. Although this time of year it's it's all white. So maybe think of some other part of the world that's not covered in snow. Think about that, the creator of everything, okay? That's who we're talking to. That's who wants to connect with us this morning, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. Beautiful. Now, out, Paul goes on and says, I pray that out of his glorious, unlimited resources, the creator who made the heavens and the earth, his unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. So the power that made the creation wants to empower us with inner strength in our spirits, okay? That amazing power wants to come on us through his Holy Spirit. Why? It says, then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Jesus wants to make his home inside us. 
He wants to settle down. He wants to dwell there with us. Jesus does not want to couch surf in you. All right? This is not a temporary arrangement. He's moving in. He's bringing his stuff. And he doesn't want just one room in the heart of your home. He wants access to everything. And that means even the dirty closets where you don't want to show anybody else. Okay? But if Jesus is God, and he's the creator, and he's gone to such great lengths to rescue us from sin and our own foolishness, he is the right to do this. He will not kick down the doors, but he will ask you to open those doors to all of your life. So Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. As we trust in him, we can open up more and more of ourselves to him and say, yeah, Jesus, here's that dirty part of my life I didn't want anybody to see, but can you help me? Can you clean it up and I'll cooperate? I'll open the door and can you help me with this? Certainly. thought you'd never ask, he says. Then what happens? God will help us, our roots grow down into God's love and keep us strong. That's what happens when we develop that ongoing communion with God. Our roots grow down into his love and keeps us strong. There's no stronger foundation for anyone's life than to be based on God's love. Everything else is really fickle, right? Are we supposed to trust our politicians or our economy or our favorite sports team or our favorite celebrity or anything else? You can't put your roots down into anything else as stable, trustworthy, and life-giving as God's love. Paul continues, May you have the power to understand as all God's people should. He's really going at it now. He's really working up a sweat. May you have the power to understand how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. He's running out of words right now. How wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. And may you experience the love of Christ. Though it's too great to understand fully, I do not get why God loves human beings. I do not understand why God loves Rick Hill. I just say, okay, thanks, you know, but I don't get it because I don't deserve it. And frankly, nobody here does. Wow, that might offend you. In the name of Jesus, get over yourself and get in on this love. All right? Get in on it. May you understand how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. And may you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Then, then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. That's transformation, folks. That's transformation. May you be made complete, like mature. Not that you have it all together, but you have this sense of, I know where I've come from. I know where I'm going. God's with me. I'm not giving in to fear and control. Then you'll know the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Then you'll start thriving. 
And he wraps, and wraps it up and says, you know, all glory to God who is able to, through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and Christ Jesus for all generations forever and ever. Amen. Wow. That's my prayer for all of us, that we learn to live life with God. Let's pray. Father, I just want to ask you, if you could do this for us, help us to learn to live life with you. We confess our, our desire, our sinful desire, to control you. Boy, is that ever stupid. That's really dumb. But we confess that right now. It's foolish and selfish and, and childish. We would like to be childlike in our faith. Nestled up to you just like a weaned child with its mom. Just, just enjoying your presence and you enjoying us. Will you teach us this? Because we didn't grow up with this. It's not in our culture. Forgive us for being consumer Christians, for trying to get something out of you. Holy Spirit, only you can reveal how deep, how long, how wide, how high is your love for us. But I pray that you will begin to do that today in a powerful way. We commit ourselves to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.